0: Good morning, Glenn Allen. I really cannot tell you how thankful I am to be able to be back up here this morning uh, after not being able to for a couple of weeks. Uh, That's kind of hard uh, on somebody like me who's uh, done this for a long, long time and and loves doing it. Uh, But I'm thankful to the Lord uh, to be better, to be uh, recovered from surgery. I'm thankful to all of you for your prayers. Uh, your good wishes, your food, your cards—everything. Uh, it was so great to know that so many people were uh, praying for me and and uh, for my family, and and willing to uh, offer your help in so many ways. And it was just um, very much appreciated, as well as appreciating the brothers who filled in for me when I was not able to to speak. The doctor said you <clears throat> probably will not want to preach for two weeks uh, because you'll have trouble having enough. Uh, breath to, um, project your voice. And I thought two weeks, you've got to be kidding. He wasn't, uh, he, he was right. And I'm I'm glad I listened to him, Uh, but it's great to be able to be back up here today and to be studying with you Romans chapter one, verses one to 15. And I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at this text and I want to encourage you to be reading Romans one, uh, thoroughly uh, every week for the next few weeks as we think about it together. I want to start by asking you to fill in a blank in your own mind, not that your mind is blank, but to (laughs) fill in a blank uh, in your mind by saying that the most important thing in my life is. Most important thing in my life is. Now, for a lot of us, that may be kind of hard to do. Some might automatically think the most important thing in my life is my family The most important thing in my life is my work. The most important thing in my life is being outdoors. Some might have to honestly say the most important thing in my life is money. The most important thing in my life is helping other people. Most important thing in my life is striving to enjoy life. There's all kinds of ways that that question might be answered. And it might be difficult for us, but it wasn't difficult for Paul because for Paul, the most important thing in his life was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That wasn't just part of his life, that was his life. That's who he was. He was able to say, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so preaching Christ was the very most important thing in Paul's life, telling others the good news about Jesus. It occupied his every waking moment. Now. As you probably know, Paul supported himself in his preaching by making tents. But even in making tents, he was doing that so he could preach the gospel. And can you imagine buying a tent from Paul? Can you imagine going to him and saying, uh, Paul, I need a tent? And he'd say, well, I have this nice uh, black goat's hair model here. Have you heard about Jesus? (laughs) I, I think he probably talked to everybody that he dealt with about the Lord Jesus Christ to tell them the gospel. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That was his life. That was the air that he breathed. So when he began this letter to the church in Rome, When he started the letter, he began by talking about what was most important. He began by talking about the gospel. You see, Romans is something of a a letter of introduction from Paul to the church in Rome. He'd never been there. If you look at verses 8 to 15, you'll see him saying that, that he's often wanted to come to Rome, but thus far been prevented. He's never been able to do it. And so he's anticipating a future visit and he writes a letter ahead. And he says, "I, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what I'm about what my life is all about and so he tells them that beginning in chapter one and verse one when he says paul a servant of christ jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of god he said that's who i am i am someone who has been singled out and set apart for the purpose of preaching the gospel of god you look down to verse nine he says for god is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And he says in verses 8 to 15, he's never been to Rome, but he wanted to come for a long time. And the reason, he says, is I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Paul even wanted to preach to people who'd already heard. He wanted to preach the gospel to those who already knew the gospel. He just couldn't tell it enough. So when those in Rome who didn't already know Paul asked, who's Paul? He wanted the ready answer to be. He is that servant of the Lord who's given his life in preaching the gospel to everyone that he can. Now, Romans is Paul's lengthiest letter of all the 13 and in it, he lays the groundwork or in these first few verses, he lays the groundwork for everything that he's going to say in the whole letter. It's all right here, compact form in the opening verses of Romans chapter one. N.T. Wright has called this opening of the Roman letter Paul's launching pad for the rest of the letter. This is where it all begins. And in German, it's all right here. And then he develops it throughout the rest of the letter. You see, in Romans, he's going to talk about the gospel. He's going to talk about what the gospel is. He's going to talk about why the gospel is necessary. He's going to explain how the gospel works. He's going to talk about how you live out the gospel day by day. And so he starts off by introducing the subject of the gospel. So we're going to spend the next four or five weeks together looking at this, this first chapter of Romans to see what the gospel is all about and to see what happens when the world rejects the gospel as well as what happens when people receive the gospel. Now, there are two reasons I want us to do this together, and here's, here they are. First of all, because we're living in a world that by and large rejects the gospel, We're living in a world that for the most part rejects the gospel and we need to understand how that rejection of the gospel impacts the world in which we live. The world in which we live is largely the way it is because people reject the gospel and we need to understand that and we need to know how to speak to those people and to respond to that culture in a godly way. The other reason for doing this is because not everyone is going to reject the gospel. And we need to know how to tell them the story. We need to know how to relate the gospel to them. We need to be sure that what we're telling to the lost and dying world is the gospel. Because if it isn't, they don't have any hope. So let's start off with Paul in Romans one this morning asking this question. What is the gospel about? That's going to be our theme every week. What's the gospel about? And first and foremost, the gospel, Paul says, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's whose servant Paul said he was in verse 1. And that was what he preached, he says, is the gospel concerning his son, concerning God's son. All right, you're not surprised by that, that the gospel is about Jesus, but what about him? What is about about him that makes him the subject of the gospel? Notice verse 2, he says, his coming was promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures. The gospel wasn't an afterthought. The gospel wasn't something where God had created the world, and he created man and woman, and he put them in the garden, and they messed up, and he said, well, what am I going to do now? God always knew what he was going to do. God always knew from eternity, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, exactly what the plan would be. He would send his son. The gospel has been in the works for a long, long time. The prophets testified to it hundreds of years before Jesus came. There were prophets who were telling the people of someone who was going to come and be the Savior of the world. Just one example, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. 800 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah the prophet says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to be with us in the presence, in the person of his son. A child is going to be born. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In verse 3, Paul says he was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, there are two important points made in that third verse. First of all, Jesus' coming fulfilled a promise that God made to David a thousand years before Jesus came. A thousand years before he came. God made the promise. Let me read it to you. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. Remember that David had gotten it in, in his head that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. and He told Nathan the prophet that's what he wanted to do. Nathan said, God has been with you in everything you do. So basically, he says, go for it. I think it's a great idea. During the night... The Lord spoke to Nathan, and he says, no, that's not the plan. Here's what you go and tell David. You tell David, I'm going to build a house for you. You're not going to build one for me. I'm going to build a house for you. But listen to the promise he makes in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity i will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love i will not will not depart from him as i took it from Saul whom i put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me david wanted to build god a house god said no you can't build it your son we will build it. And we know who built the house. We know who built the temple. It was Solomon, David's son. But when you read this promise in these verses, all of this can't be about Solomon, can it? Some of it can be he built the temple, and he committed iniquity. And he was chastised by God for it. But here's one thing that, that, that could not be true about Solomon in that text. His throne was not established forever. His throne was not established forever. It was passed on to somebody else. He wasn't king forever. But notice that the promise was after after your time, David, after your time, I'm going to raise up a son who comes from your flesh. He comes from your body. He's descended from you. And that's none other than Jesus the Christ. And he will establish your throne forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So when Jesus came into the world, God was fulfilling a promise that he had made long, long ago to David. That's why, as Paul opens the letter, he refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the one for whom Israel had waited so long. But the other thing that's emphasized in verse 3 is that Jesus is a real person. He's not a myth. He's not a made-up idea. He's not a fairy tale savior. He is a real individual. He had a fleshly ancestry just like all of us do. You can read his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And notice that that genealogy starts in Matthew 1 and verse 1 by saying, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You know, if Jesus were alive today and he were to send off some of his DNA to one of those companies that tells you your, your background. I've never done that, because you know there's some things I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I've just never done that. But if he, if he were to do that, and he were to send that off to 23andMe, you know, and he'd get the report back, and it would say, dear Mr. Jesus, we're happy to tell you, by the way, you're descended from Abraham. You may not have known that. You're descended from Isaac. You're descended from Jacob. You're descended from David, the greatest king of Israel. He had a human DNA when he was on this earth, just like you and just like me. He got hungry. He got tired. He could die. He did die on the cross for our sins. He was a real person, a real savior. We don't worship an idea. We worship a person, God's own son, descended from David. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John says, That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which our eyes have looked upon, and which our hands have touched, we proclaim to you a real-life Savior. And then he goes on to say in the rest of the letter that anyone who does not agree with that, any other view of Jesus, any other gospel that is preached, he says, is a lie. It's simply false. He is the Son of God descended from David. Then look at verse 4. He goes even further. He says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's been a lot of confusion about Romans 1.4. Some folks have read it and said, Well, Jesus became God's son when he was raised from the dead. It's not what he says. He says he was declared to be God's son by his resurrection of the dead. He was declared to be the son of God in power by, God's, uh, by the resurrection of the dead. He isn't saying that he wasn't God's son until the resurrection. The resurrection didn't make him God's son. You heard read right at the beginning of the service uh, that text about Jesus' baptism. What did God say when Jesus was baptized? He said, this is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. He was already God's son. When he went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And he was transfigured in their presence. And and Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And they heard the voice of God say. This is my son. Listen to him. He was already God's son. The resurrection did not make him God's son. But now he has been declared to be. The son of God in power. Not in weakness not in the weakness of the flesh, not in the weakness of his death on the cross, not in the weakness of his suffering, but in the power of his resurrection, the Son of God in power and in glory. I was rather surprised a number of years ago when I I had an assignment in school to write a paper on the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts and the role of the resurrection in that preaching. If you had asked me before I did that study, what did the apostles preach the most about in the book of Acts? I would have said they preached about the cross. And I would have been wrong because what I found and what you would find if you read through it carefully is what they preached mostly was the resurrection. They preached mostly the resurrection. They didn't neglect the cross. But you see, without the resurrection, the cross was meaningless. Without the resurrection, the cross was simply the death of a good man. But with the resurrection, it was declaring him to be the son of God in power. With the resurrection, it brought about the good news of the hope of eternal life for all of us. The resurrection verified his identity. The centurion said it is death. Surely this was the son of God. But it wasn't until he was raised from the dead that even his own disciples were convinced of it. And that, in fact, he could be proclaimed as the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul said, Here's the gospel that I preached to you, which you believed when I proclaimed it to you, that Christ Jesus was, died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to all the apostles and, and then to 500 at one time. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born." He appeared also to me. All those appearances of the resurrected Jesus to prove to a skeptic like Paul who Jesus really was. John R.W. Stott summed it up well when he said the source of the gospel is God. The attestation of the gospel is scripture. And the substance of the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is first and foremost about jesus now let's talk for a minute about why that's important why do we need to be reminded of that that the gospel is about jesus first of all because it reminds us that the gospel has a specific content the gospel is not just a feel-good religious message the way it has so often been understood and interpreted It is about Jesus the Christ. It is about the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and who rose from the dead and who has the power to transform human lives to be what God wants them to believe, wants them to be. To be a Christian is not simply to believe something about Jesus. It's to believe this about Jesus. It's to believe what Paul is saying about Jesus. That and that alone is the gospel. I've been amazed over the years to encounter people who will talk about how much they love the Lord and how committed they are to Jesus. And then you begin to talk to them and you realize they don't have a clue who Jesus is. They don't know anything that scripture says about Jesus. They don't know anything about the content of the gospel. They are in love with an idea. They're in love with an idea about Jesus without having any idea as to who he really is. To be a Christian is not just to believe something. It is to believe what Paul says about Jesus. The gospel is a message of good news, but it's also a message that calls sinners to repentance. And that's the message that Paul says he was compelled to proclaim both to Jews and to Gentiles. And if that's not the message you've heard, if that's not the message you've believed, if that's not the message to which you've committed your life, then you have to recognize that you have not yet believed the gospel. You've not yet turned to God through the gospel of his son. You need to accept what Paul and others preached about Jesus. You need to accept the real Jesus, not the Jesus of your emotions, not the Jesus of somebody's imagination, not some false Jesus that somebody has dreamed up because they don't like the real one. You have to believe what Paul says about the real Jesus. The second reason this is important for us as a church Is it because Jesus is the message you and I ought to be telling to everyone we can? We've got to be sure we're telling that message. Sometimes, even in the church, we've been confused about that. And we've preached everything but the gospel. We've preached a lot and maybe not ever preached the gospel. I remember seeing a a series uh, of uh, CDs one time that were... Supposedly presented the gospel message and there was one on the church and there was one on baptism and there was one on worship and there was one on this and there was one on that. There was not one on Jesus. There was not one on Jesus. There was nothing in there. that explained the role of Jesus that said this is who Jesus is. This is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we preach everything but the gospel. The gospel is not about the church. The gospel is not about baptism. The gospel is not about social justice. The gospel is not about proper worship. The gospel is not about how to organize the church. And notice I'm not saying that any of those things are unimportant. They are all important. But none of them is the gospel. And until we preach the gospel. And those things flow out of that and result from that. We haven't yet told people how to be saved. We haven't yet told them what the saving power really is. We've got to proclaim to them who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. It is essential that we get that right. It's essential that we know how to tell people about the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, not those other things. We don't want to leave those other things out. But at the same time, We've got to get the right perspective. It's Christ, Jesus, who is the good news for the salvation of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter four and verse five, Paul said, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Get that. What we proclaim is not ourselves. The gospel is not about telling the world what good people we are. The gospel is not about telling the world how to come and be like us. It's not about telling the world that we can persuade you to believe what we believe. We proclaim not ourselves, Paul says, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It isn't about us. It is about him. If we don't know how to talk about Jesus, we'd better learn. Because we're living in a lost and dying world. And the only hope of that lost and dying world is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to hear. And we've got to learn how to tell it if we do not know. But the important thing right now, this morning, is to see how lost you are without Jesus and what blessings God has in store and what he wants to give you through him. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible It's John chapter 1 and verse 11. It says that he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own and they didn't receive him. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that was. God sent Jesus to his own people and they didn't receive him. But then there's verses 12 and 13. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So there are those who receive him, and there are those who don't. And those who don't receive him, receive him, create a tragic mistake. Those who do receive him, receive power to become children of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what God can do and wants to do for you. So let me plead with you this morning. Don't reject him. Allow yourself to be born again. Born of God. And become his child by confessing the name of Christ. And, and repenting of your sins. And, and being baptized into Jesus. And rising to live with him. And to live through him. And to live because of him. And then, like Paul... The gospel will become the most important thing in your life, too. If you're ready to turn to him today and receive him, we're ready to help you. And most important of all, he is ready to receive you. You can come right now while we stand and sing. I hear the Savior say.